Everybody say good morning to Anjanette. So one of the wonderful and awesome things about our church family is that we have a lot of people who can preach. Um, and, and Anjanette's one of them. I don't know if you consider yourself a preacher or not. Probably not. <laughs> in college, never mind. I'm not going to go back there. Anyway, um, but uh, one of the gifts is just hearing from different voices in our church family. Um, because it's important that we hear uh, different perspectives. And so Anjanette's going to come this morning uh, as, as one of those perspectives. And just really super excited to hear from you. Can I pray for you as you come on over? Uh, Jesus, thanks so much um, for how you speak through the body of Christ. Um, thanks uh, for how we heard from Douglas a few weeks ago. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to hear from Anjanette this morning. Thank you that um, part of being a part of the body is to hear different voices in the body, and we pray your blessing on this particular voice this morning through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I had declared long ago that I would never, ever have an artificial Christmas tree. You know, a fake tree. I drew a very clear line, and this would always be true for me. There would always be the smell of pine in our home. We would joyfully make the trek with saw in hand to identify that family tree for the year and to chop it down and don it with our ornaments water it regularly, and clean up each fallen pine needle with a smile. <laughs> and we would take it to the curb after Christmas and we'd whisper that prayer that we hadn't missed a special ornament before it went away, all while creating a Hansel and Gretel-esque path of pine needles. And we would do it gladly, until this year. See, I started to think about the yearly cost and the potential toll on the environment, and what if we brought a used tree into our home that could have a positive impact and reduce consumerism. And so an artificial tree it was, purchased straight from Facebook Marketplace. And so on an artificial tree, um, there was no trek, there was no saw, there was no pine scent, there was no sap, and it was amazing. Amazing, easy, pre-lit, beautiful, and it was right for us. And so I swallowed my I never and celebrated the merits of both live and not so alive Christmas trees. I didn't miss our real Christmas tree, but I did have to sit back and wonder why I ever drew such a line. <laughs> Have you ever said I would never fill in the blank? Or I could never embrace that idea, or maybe even I could never connect with that person, or I could never understand them, only to need to swallow those words. You know, the moment when you realize you didn't know what you didn't know, and you maybe didn't have all the information, or the perspective, or your circumstances changed, or your heart changed, and the line you drew could no longer stand. Well, last week, as a church family, Joshua led us through considering what it means to engage with Scripture, and we explored approaches and practices and resources that could lead us deeper and more intentionally into hearing from God as we engage His Word. And we sat with this idea that the main purpose of Scripture actually is to reveal the person of Jesus. 
that the Old Testament revealed that the Savior was coming and the New Testament considers the implication of Scripture for the lives of the Jews. And while this time this morning is not necessarily going to be instructive as to how to engage with Scripture, my hope is that it will be illustrative, that'll show us the intricate weaving together of the old and the new, the presence and the work of the Spirit, and the way we grow through engaging, through challenging ourselves, and for looking for lines that we've really drawn unfairly and unnecessarily. And hopefully, we'll be willing to pull out an eraser, some whiteout, maybe even a fresh sheet of paper. And this morning, we're going to do that by looking at two of the lectionary passages for this Sunday. So we'll briefly consider Isaiah 42, and then we'll delve more deeply into Acts 10. Okay, so as we turn to Isaiah 42, um, I, I want to give you some context some information that was new to me as I, as I studied this passage. Um, so this passage actually um, appears in the second portion of Isaiah that actually has become known as the second Isaiah. The second Isaiah addresses the Jewish exile to Babylonia that had followed the fall of the city of Jerusalem. And what we're actually reading in Isaiah 42 was written when this community of Jerusalem was fractured. So imagine this fractured community. We have one part of the community living in exile along the banks of the Euphrates, and we have another part of this community scratching out a living in their homeland. And the Jewish people, whether they found themselves in exile or in their devastated homeland, were feeling very spiritually dislocated. Um, and, and I'm sure they couldn't help but wonder, did God have the power to protect them? Did he care for them? Um, I love what one of the commentators, Richard Ward, said. He said the covenant made with the wild, whispering God of Abraham and Sarah was now, it seemed, a broken promise. But in Isaiah 42, the prophet speaks to the people with a song, actually, um, and he stands with them in a space where the center used to be. Um, he dares to speak a word of hope, to assure them that a center really is present, it's just hidden, perhaps by circumstances. And so as we read his song of hope, um, consider how this passage reveals the Jesus who is to come. So in Isaiah 42, here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, islands will put their hope This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. 
I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things, I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This song of hope reveals to this defeated community and to us, also a fractured people, that God will take hold of their hands, will keep and make a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. This Jesus is going to open eyes that are blind, is going to open our eyes, is going to free captives, is going to release people from darkness, and is going to erase some very divisive lines. Hope. Hope that would come but the wait was going to be very, very long. So seven centuries pass between Isaiah's prophecy of a savior and Jesus' arrival and death and resurrection of this hope. It's a lot of waiting with hope. So I'm gonna fast forward all through that to Acts 10. <laughs> Jesus has come, he's loved, he's taught, and he's now gone from the earth. And the Jewish people are working through the implications of this prophecy that had come to fruition. So they are working through the way of Jesus, what had been prophesied in Isaiah 700 years ago that they have just lived through and experienced. And they're working through what the way of Jesus actually means for them and for Rome and for others in Rome. And so today we use their working out of this to consider what it means for us. So Acts 10, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So I actually want to stop here, just two verses in, because we read these verses and we probably nod that yes, of course, Jesus, God, does not show favoritism. He accepts everyone from every corner of the world. It'd be easy to read this and we could just move on because, sure, we know that. But if we do that, we're going to miss just how significant this statement is and how hard fought it was for Peter to arrive at and how almost scandalous it was, and it is. So part of, part of reading and, and digging into scripture that I love is the context, getting the context, knowing the speaker and the audience and the history, um, and just the role it plays. So I want to dig a little into that into this context of this statement that today feels pretty familiar. <clears throat> so Peter spoke these words um, in the house of Cornelius after he had been invited there. Cornelius so anticipated his arrival that he'd gathered his relatives, he'd gathered his close friends 
to be present for this very honored guest. And when Peter entered the house, Acts 10, verse 25 tells us that Cornelius met him and he actually fell at his feet in reverence. He so welcomed and was so in awe of Peter's coming. But this encounter and these two men coming together, one falling at the other's feet, um, Cornelius actually inviting Peter to his home, it was all completely against the lines that had been drawn. Cornelius was a Gentile and Peter was a Jew. And in these days, Jews and Gentiles kept their relationships very far apart. It was against the law, their law, for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or even visit him. And if Peter entered Cornelius's house, Peter would have been made unclean under the law. And remember, this was even after Jesus died and was resurrected. So to be born a Jew as Peter was, was to be in the line of Abraham, to be chosen, to be special, privileged, different. It was a racial, ethnic, religious, and spiritual designation. So the first Christians were Jews who believed that Jesus had been raised by God and they were baptized. Yet, they still held on to the Jewish ritual. They continued to circumcise male offspring, follow dietary laws, and live in obedience to the Torah. They were essentially a Christian sect of Jews. And so a Jew and a Gentile together in the Gentile's house, very, very unlikely, but there's more. So Cornelius was a centurion. He was a military officer, a Roman soldier, a leader in the empire that had both oppressed and persecuted the Jews, the empire that killed Jesus, and he wore the uniform that represented power and injustice. So it's illegal, it's countercultural, it flies against everything that was appropriate and accepted. So why was Peter there? Why was he in Cornelius's house? The answer is that God was about to do something amazing. The Spirit had moved these men toward this moment and this encounter. See, just before Peter's vision, Cornelius, just before Peter's visit, Cornelius had a vision. Cornelius was not your typical centurion. The first verses of Acts 10 tell us that he and his family were actually devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. He didn't follow the ways of polytheistic Rome. He was devoted to the one God. But remember, he was still a Gentile. So one afternoon, Cornelius has a vision. And an angel appears and informs him that he's to send men to Joppa, to a house by the sea, and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. And so Cornelius sends men to Joppa to do just that. And on the very next day, just as these men are traveling to Joppa to this house by the sea, Peter's on the roof praying, and he's hungry. I love the way scripture honors our human needs and feelings. Um, and he's hungry, and he's waiting for a meal to be prepared. And the Spirit carries him into a chant, into a trance, into his hungry state. 
And Peter sees heaven open, and something like a large sheet is let down to earth. It contains all kinds of four-footed animals, reptiles, and birds, and he hears a voice, and it tells him to get up, Peter, and kill and eat. But Peter refuses. Of course not. I have not eaten anything impure. I've not eaten anything unclean. This is wholly against Jewish law. This is who I am. Peter has drawn a line. He's stuck to it. He's not crossing it. He's challenged, and he stands firm in his conviction. But this voice, it says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. But three times Peter stands firm. Three times Peter says, I have drawn a line. And each time he's told not to call anything impure that God has made clean. So Peter is trying to understand this vision. What was God saying to him? What did it mean? It challenged him. It moved the line. Peter had lived through some unbelievable things. I mean, this was a close friend of Jesus, right? This guy walked on water. I mean, he, he was on the mountain when Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus was transfigured. He was told by Jesus to feed his lamb, that he would build his church upon him, Peter, the rock. But this vision, this message, it was opposite of everything he'd known. And he may not have realized it, but in this moment, the course of Christianity was about to change. And as Peter contemplated this vision, he's trying to figure out what this meant. These three men whom Cornelius had sent come to the gate of the house by the sea and call for him. And the spirit, who's clearly working through all of this and through all of us, tells him that three men are looking for him, tells him to get up and to go down, and he does. Um, and he meets the men, and he learns that Cornelius wanted him to come to his house so that he, as verse 22 tells us, so that he, Cornelius, could hear what Peter had to say. And I just wonder if Peter even knew what he had to say. He was still trying to figure out what this vision meant. But he goes on the third day, and he and his, some brothers from Joppa travel and arrive at Cornelius' house. And this, my friends, is the beginning of what the Church of Jesus is all about. The church is about to be built, it's about to grow, and the lines are about to be erased. Peter's about to speak, and he's about to say something he did not fully embrace until that moment. The gospel's for everyone. No longer was salvation just for the Jews. No longer were circumcision and kosher cooking signs of a covenant relationship with God. No longer was Christianity a subsect of the Jewish religion. Now Christ's commission was understood and could be fulfilled. So let's hear what Peter had to say. Because the people are gathered and the Spirit has led them there and visions and trances and unlikely friends are together. And while this time together is forbidden, Peter understands the vision, and he has something to say. So verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. 
but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he ran around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets, including Isaiah, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness and receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So in this moment, Peter has opened the door for Christianity to spread to all, Jews and Gentiles alike. This vision wasn't just about clean and unclean food. In fact, the way of Jesus and his church are firmly built on the truth that there is no line separating the clean and unclean. We're all in. And as he's sharing, the Holy Spirit moves again and comes in what some call the Gentile Pentecost and is poured out even on the Gentiles. They begin speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter, in this moment of power, an amazing revelation declares that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And they're baptized just as Peter and John and Jesus and all the Jewish Christians had been. And word spreads because the Gentiles have received the word of God. Peter's criticized for going into the house of the uncircumcised and eating with them because this is so scandalous. But he explains, and he explains how the Spirit revealed that they had incorrectly drawn a line. And in Acts eleven seventeen, he says, So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Peter shifted the entire course of Christianity because he didn't hold on white-knuckled to the lines he'd drawn. The way of Jesus, the life of following Jesus, is characterized by growth and submission to the Spirit's leading. We never fully arrive at complete understanding and knowledge. We will forever learn and need to think and rethink and allow our understanding to be developed and matured. I'm not suggesting we need to abandon all truth or that truth is relative, and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't stand firm in the solid truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the incredible power of the work of the Spirit in our lives. But I'm suggesting that we consider what we're holding on to and where we are drawing lines that are keeping us from a deep, intimate walk with Jesus and others. Because Jesus is alive, and he's got a plan, and we're part of it. 
I wonder what we might miss if we stand too firmly on beliefs and understandings that the Spirit is calling us to shift. I'm wondering who we might miss. I'm wondering where we're drawing lines about denominations or traditions or groups of people, or who Jesus is here for. Just because we're followers of Jesus does not mean that every conclusion we reach is accurate. Jesus um, speaks to us through Peter, because Peter was wrestling with what Jesus meant for Gentiles, but maybe today we're people called to consider what Jesus means for those who are walking differently than us, those we don't understand. What does Jesus mean for those in power, for the marginalized, for those who can't get out of bed in the morning because their anxiety is crippling, for those who sink deeply into depression, for those who've had affairs, for those who've hurt too many people, for those who are illegal immigrants, for those whose child is making some really destructive choices, for those who are incarcerated, for those who share a vision of Jesus that we don't subscribe to, for those who don't sing hymns, or those who use a different translation of the Bible, for those who are struggling with addiction, for those who are struggling in the LGBTQ community, for those whose lives look differently than ours, do we draw lines and blame and judge and decide who Jesus thinks these people are and what Jesus thinks of these people and what limits there might be to what he can do in their lives? Do we draw a line and put some people on the other side? Lutheran pastor Nadia Bolsweber likes to say that whenever we draw lines and we separate ourselves on this side of the line from the bad people over there, Jesus simply goes and stands with the people on the other side of the line. And so the only way to not be on the other side of the line from Jesus is to stop drawing lines in the first place. In Think Again, The Power of Knowing What We Don't Know, Adam Grant writes that we learn more from people who challenge our thought process than those who affirm our conclusions. So although we might be on board with this principle in practice, we often miss out on the value of a challenge network. Are you open to reconsidering places you have stood for too long? Do you have a challenge network? Do you have people who encourage you to ask hard questions and that ask you hard questions? Do you create an echo chamber where you only hear views that make you feel good instead of those that make you think hard? If confronted by the spirit, do you, like Peter, listen and contemplate? He's gonna repeat himself as many times as it takes. But what if we aren't allowing the line to be moved? And what if Peter wasn't willing? And what if we keep Jesus for people like us? And what if we judge and we aren't willing to let the kingdom to grow? It's okay to erase lines. It's okay to grow and realize you've been wrong. So one of the amazing things about preparing a message to deliver to your church family is that God does the very work in you and causes you to wrestle with the same issues and challenges that you intend to share. I'm not talking about our Christmas tree this time. <laughs> so I want to close with an unbelievable story about something that happened this week as I was preparing for this message. 
So 13 years ago, my uncle, who was in his 50s, was in a serious motorcycle accident. He was full of life and joy and had the biggest laugh you've ever heard. He struggled with learning disabilities throughout his life, but that didn't stop him. He had a faith that was on fire, and he was a voracious learner of the word, and any book about Jesus that he could get his hands on or any message he could listen to, and he could barely speak a few sentences without mentioning Jesus. And what was interesting is that he had all of these notebooks filled with commentary and notes that he would write as he read scripture. And he had copy after copy of Bibles in his home where he would um, underline and uh, write comments and notes and how they, what they meant for him. And I admired his passion and his faith um, despite the struggle it might have been for him to learn. But the trauma from the accident proved too much for his earthly body, and despite surgeries in days and days in the ICU, um, he couldn't survive the accident, and, and he left an incredible mark on people. Can I just tell you that even his mail carrier and waitresses from his favorite restaurant were at his service? He was dearly missed. So I'm preparing for this morning as I often do when I prepare for any project, I grab a fresh pad of paper and begin to jot down ideas that I have. So I did just that, and I noticed that at the very top of the pad that I grabbed, it said Sam's Club. And I sort of chuckled because we don't belong to Sam's Club, but my parents do, and they're savers, and we'd recently cleaned out their house when they moved to Lancaster, and I, I was sure it had come from them. So over the course of several days, I'm preparing and I'm making lists and I'm writing in this pad. When I turn the page and I see there's writing in there and it's coming through the particular piece of paper. And I flip the page and I immediately recognize the handwriting. It's my uncle's. And these words were a statement of the value of scripture, of his worth, of who God says he is. And I was overwhelmed with the presence of the Spirit that 13 years after his death, I would be sitting preparing to share God's love and acceptance, and I would be surprised by the words he'd written there for me. So I stared out the window, and I was just struck, and I thanked God for this beautiful moment, and I reread those words over and over. And if I'm honest, I was really wishing God, show me. There's got to be some connection between these words and what I'm preparing to say, and can you give me insight? And I just couldn't see it. It just wasn't there. It wasn't until I shared these words and what I had found with my sister that God challenged me to do the very thing that I'm suggesting Paul did and we should do. See, my sister recognized these words. They were from a megachurch televangelist, someone she and I had discussed very negatively in the past. And I admit, it's someone who spoke prosperity gospel and health and wealth, and someone I decided was out when it came to Jesus' approval. And admittedly, this leader has caused hurt and led people away from what um, I believe Jesus came to do. But who was I to draw a line? And who was I to decide that God had to work through my people and my denomination? And who was I to suggest that we should stop drawing lines when I was doing it myself? 
God used this leader and other people to soften my uncle's stubborn heart to him, to use him, to help him grow and develop his faith. It might take some time to erase the line completely, but I'm committed to do that work because sometimes we focus more on what we're against than what we're for. The Spirit led me to that page at that time, 13 years later, as a pad of paper moved from my uncle's house to my parents' house and to my house and to my hands to teach me the very ways that I need to grow. Because as Isaiah said, Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind, including mine and yours. And Peter said God shows no partiality. And as Nadia said, the only way not to be on the other side of the line from Jesus is to stop drawing lines in the first place. And as Adam said, we learn more from people who challenge us. So what might God do through you and through us because we embrace growth and we embrace the movement of the Spirit? I'm excited to see. And because I love visual reminders, when you leave today, there are going to be some baskets of brightly colored, almost obnoxiously colored pencils with erasers, of course. So scoop one up and allow it to be a visual reminder in whatever way you're led. Maybe a reminder to pray or to seek the Spirit or to erase some lines or to write a new story or to consider the person you need to approach, the group you need to understand better, the person Jesus is standing with that you're running away from. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we implore your spirit and we ask you to move in incredible ways in our hearts and in our minds and in our church and in your church and in all your people. I pray that you would show us where the lines have been drawn that we need to get rid of, Lord. Open us to, to step in the direction of those we judge. Thank you, Lord, that you made it clear that you are here for everyone. Thank you that no one is beyond your reach. Thank you that you teach us over and over again through our days, through your love, and through your spirit. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.